What we see happening right at the beginning of Genesis 9 is as Noah is worshipping and as he's offering, it tells us in verse 21 of chapter 8, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. The Lord is moved. He is stirred in his heart by Noah's worship. This is not a detached God. He is a God who is emotional. He is a God who, as we talked about on Sunday, whose spirit can literally be grieved by us. That we can do things that have an emotional impact on our father. It shouldn't be a surprise. That's the way it is in our family. As a father myself, my children, my wife, and our relationships, they have an emotional impact on me. I'm happy when they're happy. I'm excited when they're excited. I'm angry when they're disobedient. Not Cheryl. She's allowed to disobey anytime she wants. But there's an emotional bond between us. And the father is that way with his children. So moved is the father by Noah's act of worship that he does what he has not done before, at least not as explicitly as this. He offers up a covenant. He enters into a covenant with mankind. And we're going to look closely at that tonight. Let's start reading in verse 1. Chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your life, blood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be caught off, cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there ever again be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you. Sorry, I lost my place. For, and for all successive generations, verse 13, I shall set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on 
the earth. This begins chapter 9 with Noah and his sons, his family, hearing the exact same thing that Adam and Eve heard when the earth was young, when the earth was new. The earth now has been destroyed. The waters have, have gone away and God is now speaking with Noah and his family in a new world and he says the same thing he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But there's a huge difference between these days and the days of Adam and Eve. And that is that the earth is no longer paradise. It's no longer free from the burden of sin. For you see, even though the flood washed the earth clean of much of the evil, much of the sin and violence, it didn't wash the earth completely clean. How do we know? Because Noah was still alive. Because his sons were still alive. They're his wives, his sons' wives. Noah's family, being human, still carried that tendency. What God calls the intent of man's heart, which is evil from you. It's there. And God knows it. And so God does something here right at the beginning of the new world for Noah and his family and for all mankind. He sets up three basic ground rules in the form of a covenant. Now before we get to those ground rules, I'm going to do just kind of a, a quick speedy blur over what covenants are in Scripture. And if you take notes, you might want to write these down. It's interesting and it's very important because when you understand covenant, you understand the Father better. First of all, a description or a definition of what a covenant is. A covenant in Scripture is a sovereign proclamation from God placing him into a relationship of responsibility with either a man, a family, or a nation. A covenant in Scripture is a sovereign proclamation from God. A sovereign proclamation from God placing him into a relationship of responsibility with either a man, a family, or a nation. And in every single case but one, God's covenants are unconditional. When God enters into a covenant relationship with a man, a family, or a nation, with one exception, it is always unconditional. Meaning that God is the one who will fulfill his covenant. God is the one who is going to keep the covenant, not us, which is really good news. And there's only one case when that's not the way it is, and we're going to see that very quickly. I want to study the idea of covenant much more in the future, but right now, quickly highlight eight covenants of God in Scripture, and here they are. Number one is what we could call the Adamic covenant, the, or Adamic covenant, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. This is after the fall of man, and God enters into a covenant with Adam and Eve, and mankind after that. He gives new rules. He says life will be hard, but there's hope. Man will work. Woman will give birth. But ultimately there will be a seed of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And so that's the first of many covenants, the Adamic covenant. Secondly, which we'll study tonight, is the, the Noahic covenant. Genesis chapter 9. That covenant that God makes with Noah, and we're going to look very closely at that in a moment. Number three. Number three is the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God comes to Abraham, and we're very close to that. In fact, what's great about studying Genesis is just as we finish Noah, we get to go into the story next week of Babel. Cool story. Interesting stuff. After Babel, we go into Abraham, and it's just it's one interesting relationship that God has with man after another. So we're close to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is a fascinating covenant to read. 
a very important one. I'm not going to discuss it tonight because, again, we're close and we'll look at that in two or three weeks. One thing I do want to point out here, though. The word covenant, actually it's the Hebrew word berith, berith, and it means cutting. Or as in cutting something in half. The reason that it means that, or the connection there, you see in the next covenant that God gives, there's the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the fourth covenant is the land or Palestinian covenant. The land or Palestinian covenant. Palestinian based on when Israel was called Palestine for a long time. But the land covenant is when God comes to Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, and he lays out for him specifically which lands are going to be given to him and how long that's going to be the case. What's interesting at that time is the way that God makes that covenant with Abraham is he has Abraham take some beasts, clean beasts, and clean birds, cut them in half, lay each of the halves on either side of a walkway that literally would be a walkway of blood, and through that walkway, when Abraham was in a, in a deep and somewhat terrifying sleep, God passed through there, showing Abraham the seriousness of that covenant. Which is why the word covenant means cutting. It's the cutting of the, of the animal into halves and walking through to signify something extremely serious. Now listen to this. Interesting. Genesis chapter 15 verse 18 tells us that on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite, all the ice. Okay? Their land. The flashlights and the termites, all their land. Canaan, by the way, was the father of these people. We'll look closely at Canaan in a few minutes tonight. But all of that land God gave to Abraham and to his descendants. Now this is important, especially for what's going on in our current world. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 4 God said if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back we see that happening the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you listen to this more than your fathers something that has not happened yet with the people of Israel they have not been multiplied more than their fathers God promises this will happen I will bring you people of Abraham children of Abraham people of Israel Jews I will bring you back to this land that is guaranteed, promised to be your land. The Palestinian Authority, PLO, calls the presence... PLA. PLA? Well, it's still the PLO in heart. Right. The Palestinian Authority calls the presence of Israel, especially what they deem Palestinian territory, they call it an occupation. The reality is, historically and prophetically, the Palestinian people, who are not really even a people, are occupying Israeli land. That that land does, in fact, belong to Israel. Listen to this. A total of 300,000 square miles was given to Abraham. At the absolute height of Israel's glory, in David and Solomon's days, in those days, Israel occupied 30,000 square miles. 
God gave them 300,000 square miles. 270,000 square miles given to Abraham and his descendants by God have yet to be settled by Jewish people. God says that they will. God says that land is your land and you will inhabit it. By the way, the only time Arabs have shown any interest in Jerusalem is when it has belonged to the Jews. When it's been out of Jewish control, when Jews haven't lived there, the Arab attitude toward Jerusalem historically has been one of carelessness, absolute carelessness. Under Arab control, Palestine became a wasteland. An area that was destroyed. As a matter of fact, when you think of Palestine, when you think of the Middle East, when you think of Israel today, what kind of a climate do you normally think of? Hot, dry, arid, desert. That's not the Israel that's described in the Bible. The Israel that's described is beautiful and fertile and green and lush. The land flowing with milk and honey. Folks, Israel was that way at one time. There are several catastrophic things that have happened over the years. There are several. In fact, one, just for an example, a tree tax was put on the land of Israel. This was after the Jews were scattered, after the fall of Jerusalem, a long time after that. A tree tax was put on the land that required payment on every tree that anybody had on their land. What do you think people did? They chopped down the trees. Get rid of the trees. By getting rid of the trees, literally it changed the nature of the whole area. And it became absolutely uh, devastated. Who was the guy? Hadrian. Roman Emperor Hadrian hated the Jews so much that when he finally put them down, and this was about 70, 80 years, I believe, after the fall of Jerusalem, Hadrian comes in, puts down the Jews a final time, and is so strict and so rigid with them that if, they, if two Jews were to meet and talk in the streets of Jerusalem or anywhere in what used to be Judea, if two Jews met, they were immediately shot or killed. They were put to death. Furthermore, Hadrian salted the land. He went to great lengths, sending his men out with huge pounds, tonnage of salt, all over the land of Israel to destroy what was once beautiful there. The land that you think of when you think of hot, dry, arid, deserty is not the Israel that used to be. It's a land that people, Satan, I will put to you, work very hard to destroy. What's amazing is that as the Jews have come back into Israel, since the first part of our, the last century, and began to work and, and, and slave it and to make it more what it once was, it's beginning to be beautiful again. Now, I've seen pictures. I haven't gone yet. I'm going. I'm going. But it's getting, <laughs> it's getting fertile again. It is beginning to go back in that direction. Well, all that to say that the Arabs have not treated the land very well. Interesting that the Koran, and for all the fighting right now for Palestinian land and for Palestinian control, especially in Jerusalem, of Jerusalem, the Koran makes no mention of Jerusalem whatsoever. It is not mentioned a single time, and yet today it's, one of the, it's the third holiest site of Islam. It's not even in their holy book. And yet they consider it so important. There's a history behind that I won't get into tonight. Something else interesting. From the inception of Yasser Arafat's PLO in 1964, and as Frank mentioned, they began as a terrorist organization. I'll put to you that the Palestinian Authority still is a terrorist organization. 
And if you kind of can tell my personal political leanings on this, I have some feelings that are somewhat strong these days. From the inception of Yasser Arafat's PLO in 1964, all the way up to the Six-Day War of 1967, for those three years, there was no mention of Jerusalem in the PLO documents. That's not why the PLO was founded. The Palestinian Liberation Organization, their whole purpose was the liberation of Palestine. In other words, drive the Jews into the sea. Get them out. We don't want them here at all. If you want to know what the true agenda is, at least for Yasser Arafat, it's the destruction of the Jews. It's the goodbye to the Jews. It's not for little pieces of land. Frank, you may know this. I know that the percentage that was offered, at, was it at Oslo? That was offered to Yasser Arafat and the, and the Palestinian Authority the percentage of land that was offered was, was 95%. huge. 95% was offered to them. They turned it down. Why? Because it's not about the land. It's about getting rid of the Jew. That's their point. Well, the Jews claimed the land, and suddenly Arab interest became very intense once again. Don't miss this, folks. God made a sovereign, unconditional covenant with Israel for the land, and he promises to restore it to the Jew completely. That's what my Bible says. And that's where I believe things are headed, ultimately. Well, that's the land covenant, number four. Number five, real quickly, the Mosaic covenant. This is the one conditional covenant. Of, of the eight covenants that we're looking at here, this is the one time where God said, if you do these things, then I will do these things. If you do not do these things, then this is what will happen to you. It's a conditional covenant. God lays out rules, law, the Mosaic law, the wonderful, beautiful, fantastic law, knowing that they couldn't keep it. It's interesting to me that the one time the Lord decides to make a conditional covenant with man is a covenant that he knew there was no way they could keep. And there's a reason that he did it. Well, the book of Exodus through Deuteronomy detail this conditional covenant. You can study that on your own or just wait till we get there. Then the sixth covenant... Number six is the covenant that God made with a, a priest. And this is something I, I learned recently. Phineas, the son of Eleazar. And I just mentioned this quickly because God does make covenants with individuals as well as with families as well as with nations. And the Phineas, if you want to put it that way, P-H-E-N-I-A-I-H-A-S. Phineas is how you spell it. Numbers chapter 25 verses 12 through 13 tells the story of this priest named Phineas. He's the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. So Phineas was Aaron's grandson. And he, along with Aaron, along with the other priests, along with Moses, are sitting at the, at the gate or the, the doorway to the tent of meeting. They're at the doorway of the tabernacle and they are weeping. They're weeping because Israel has fallen in with the Midianites. The Midianites were coming, there were, there, in other words, they were intermarrying. They were getting together, Israelite men were getting together with Midianite women. And they're weeping over this. And the Lord has just given a pretty serious pronouncement against Israel for what they're doing. And there is a plague upon Israel because of what they're doing. And in the middle of this, as Phineas is sitting there in the gate weeping with the other priests, they look and lo and behold, along comes a guy named Zimri. I would encourage you not to name your child Zimri. Because Zimri comes in with a Midianite woman whose name was Cosby. <laughs> C-O-Z-B-I. So Zimri takes Cosby, this Midianite woman, by the hand and leads her into his tent. 
in the front of all these people a brazen act of rebellion to the Lord well Phineas goes nuts he can't he is, he's beside himself he is so angry at what just happened he jumps up from the place that he's sitting he grabs a spear goes into the tent and while they're in the act of being flagrant <laughs> he spears through both of them and that's how they died that day now the Lord made a covenant with Phineas. He said, because your zeal for me and for my holiness and for my righteous requirements is so great, Phineas, you now get put to the head of the line. You and your descendants. You and your descendants after you, he makes an everlasting covenant with them that allows them to basically move forward to the place of the high priests over Israel. Interesting. A lot of the stories are pretty amazing as we read through. So God establishes a covenant of perpetual priesthood for Phineas. That's the sixth covenant. The seventh is the Davidic covenant. That's the covenant that God makes with David. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Quickly, God says, I will build you a house through which you will become an eternal king. Now, some of you, if you know any Bible history at all, you may remember David wanted to build God a house. David, his kingdom was wonderful, spread out, fantastic. He, he was in, in a great place, finally a place of peace in his life. After all the wars and battles, and David says, God, I want to build you a house. Uh, here I am in this wonderful castle, and you're out there in the tabernacle, in a tent. I want to build you a house. And God says, I'll tell you what, Dave, I'll build you one. I don't want you building my house. You can't build my temple. There's too much blood on your hands because you're a warrior king. But your son Solomon, who will reign in a time of peace, he will build my house. So David draws up the plans for the temple. Solomon is the one who actually built the temple. But God makes a covenant with David that's awesome. I will build you a house through which you will become, David, an eternal king. Someone through your line. And it's the promise, of course, of Jesus. The promise of Christ. That the covenant will be completely realized when Jesus comes again. The Davidic covenant. And the eighth covenant and final covenant in scripture between God and people is the new covenant. The new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 33 talks about it. And in this new covenant wonderfully, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. That's the covenant we're bound by. That's the one that I thank God for day by day in my life. Now every covenant again of God was with one exception unconditional. Why did God have that one conditional covenant with man? I believe it was to, to explain something incredibly important. That God is the covenant maker but man is the covenant breaker. God took pains, great pains I might add to give man a single covenant to show us literally that we couldn't keep covenants. That we're not really good with promises. We're not the greatest with commitment. Especially as the Lord is concerned. Think about it. How did the Jews do with the Mosaic Covenant? Not real well. <laughs> How would you and I do? Not at all. You know, it's interesting. There are times where I look back and think, they walked through the Red Sea. And still they sinned. God delivered them without a fight on their part from Pharaoh and his entire army. And they doubted. And they whined. And they sinned. 
And I think, well, not if I was there. If I was there and walked through the sea and saw the whales swimming by, I would be so impressed that the rest of my life would absolutely belong to God. Let me put it to you this way. We have all been there. Sometimes we don't even know it. We don't even recognize or realize. And I'll remember we were talking about this the other day. We don't even realize when God is feeding the 4,000 right in front of us. We don't. And yet it happens all the time. The miraculous, the wondrous happens before our eyes almost every single day. The reason we falter is not because we don't have Red Sea experiences. We do. We just don't see them. We just miss them. We're the same. Yeah, but the really bad news is even when you do see him and you still sin. That's right. Well, it's the heart of man. And it's what God said. He made it very clear. Hey, man's heart is evil from his youth up. I know the intent of his heart. I know the intent of man's heart. Think about how we deal with our own lives. When was the last time you got a speeding ticket? And got mad at the police because you broke the law. (laughs) Or when was the last time you looked at your taxes and figured out a way to get around that. You ever just wanted to break the law? Man, all the time. Of course, that may not be good thing to say right now as a pastor, but God looks on the intent of our heart. He knows what we're like. He knows we struggle with even keeping the most basic and simple of laws. And so God enters into the Noahic Covenant. Back to Genesis chapter 9. Sorry about a little sidetrack there. It was important. God now gives us three basic rules of governance for the new world, for the different world. Three basic rules, and here they are. Number one, it gives a change in diet. A little dietary change. Very different than the Atkins diet. God says in verse 3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Okay, so really, really rare steak is out. But God, for the first time now, does this. There was no meat-eating on planet Earth prior to this time. Among beasts or man, all were vegetarians. Go back and look at Genesis 1 and you see it. God gave every green plant and every fruit tree, with the exception of the one, to man to eat. He gave every green plant to the animals to eat, not the other animals. But the world has now changed. The world is now a darker place than it was before. Now this is kind of weird. I'm gonna, I'll throw this out to you. It's a little bizarre. But people wonder, why is it that God did this? Why all of a sudden does he allow carnivorous behavior on earth? Both with people eating animal flesh and animal meat or, and among animals. Why does he allow it? This is going to be weird, but let me just throw it out there. There are those great biblical thinkers who believe that the reason that God requires man to eat meat is because demonic presence is repelled by meat. Why is that? Well... Give you a couple of reasons why. It's intriguing that strong demonic activity and spiritism tend to go on in places where vegetarianism is, is, is extremely strong and it's tied specifically to religious faith. Now, if you happen to be a vegetarian here, you know, Annette, you're alright, it's okay, don't worry about it. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it can be a healthy thing. But if you think about it, in places like India where Hinduism is so strong, where mystery Eastern religions are so strong, a lot of the, the food intake is very closely related to the religion, and vegetarianism is very strong. Just an interesting thought, but this interests me even more. There are some scriptures that seem to lend weight to this thought. Flip in your Bibles, if you will, real quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Keep a finger in Genesis 9 and we'll be right back there. 
First Timothy four. Paul's writing to Timothy. Now, Paul is at the latter part of his life. He has a great deal of spiritual wisdom here, and he's talking to Timothy about, once again, the last days. Now, if you think I talk about end times and last days a lot, just start reading through the New Testament. It's on every page. But here, Paul's writing, and he says this, verse 1, 1 Timothy 4, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. What are those? Paul goes on, By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be granted or to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and who know the truth. Now, in verse 3, Paul's writing and he says, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Now, in my Bible, the New American Standard Bible, that word men is inserted. That word's not there. So, if you go back and look at who, who are we talking about who is forbidding marriage and advocating the abstinence from foods which God created to be gratefully shared, you go back and find out, well, that's deceitful spirits. That's a doctrine of demons. That you would abstain from certain foods that God has blessed and given to you to eat. Which for a hamburger lover like me is good news. That's great to know. He goes on. Verse 6. He says to Timothy, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Constantly nourished on what? The words of the faith. And of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So Paul says, you know, it's interesting. In the end times, there is a demonic doctrine. And that doctrine is... That you should, number one, forbid marriage. Do we see that going on in our world? And number two, that you should abstain from foods that God has said, I give to you. Flip back to Genesis chapter 9 and listen again in verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I, God says, give all to you as I gave the green plant. I give it to you. I want you to eat meat. Now again, if you choose not to for health reasons, no big deal, that's fine, that's health. But we're talking about something spiritual here, and God immediately starts off this new world with a change in diet. Second thing in the Noahic Covenant is a charge of discipline. A charge of discipline. Genesis chapter 9 is actually somewhat of a controversial book, because people have very strong feelings about a couple of different sides of issues brought up. One was the one we just looked at, but this is even stronger. Verse 6, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. What are we talking about here? The death penalty. We're talking about capital punishment. Now, I want you to understand something, just from my perspective. When I first came into this and was studying it and reading it, and Frank knows, we had a long conversation about this, I had a hard time with it. Not because I'm, a, I'm a, some kind of flaming liberal, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm a free-thinking guy, what can I say? But when it comes to the death penalty, it bothered me for years and years. In fact, I was of the opinion, personally, that it's not a good idea. Why? Because we see so many times where someone is either given the death penalty and shouldn't have been, or we see several people now, especially recently with DNA testing, who are on death row who were not guilty of that crime when the proof comes out. And 
the idea that, that, that man could take the life of man has always bothered me. I've always struggled with that. But here I read, verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God, he made man. And folks, as I study this, I realize that the death penalty, capital punishment, is the foundation of human government. Of human governmental discipline. Now think about this from a biblical perspective. God declares the death penalty as a necessary deterrent for a world where the intent of man's heart is, quote, only evil from his youth. A wall, if you will. Something to stop the process. Now think about this. There's a domino effect on all culture when capital punishment is removed. What do you mean? Back when America was founded, it was indeed founded on biblical principles. It was founded on the Ten Commandments. It was truly a Judeo-Christian culture. That was the whole point of the founding of America. Not to get away from religion, but to have freedom to worship God. Freedom of religion. And religion was very core in, in the doctrines and in the fundamental principles of America. And if you look back, the following was true. Murder, murder received capital punishment. A direct one-way ticket to the justice and mercy of the Lord in eternity. If you murdered someone in America in our early days, you were given the death penalty and you were left to God to deal with how you were going to spend the rest of eternity. Rape in our country at that time. Rape received 17 to 20 years in prison. Thievery received no less than 10 years in prison. But nowadays things have changed a little bit. Currently, the average punishment in America for first-degree murder, the average punishment in America for first-degree murder is 17 years in prison. 17 years. Here's the problem. Once you reduce the worst of all crimes, once you reduce murder from a capital punishment now down to 17 years, everything else has to be reduced as well. Because you can't give a murderer 17 years and then turn around and give a rapist who, yes, what they did is horrible, awful, terrible, but it's not murder, so it's not quite you know, as bad. So you can't give the rapist 17 years, too. Gotta bump it down a little bit, to be fair. So now in our country, rapists serve 8 to 10 years. And that's not you know, dealing with getting off for good behavior. Thieves, burglary, somewhere around 3 years. And you see, when you take the top discipline and move it down, it pushes everything else down. And we begin to deal with a country like we have right now. People begin to believe that crime does pay. You might remember Cain's great-great-great-grandson, Lamech. You remember Lamech? In Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, Lamech murdered two people. And he turns around and says, Hey, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Cain got off, therefore I will more than get off. He was let off easy, so why not me? And that's the attitude that tends to spin around. Well, you say, okay, but maybe capital punishment is what God's talking about there. But isn't that Old Testament law? Look in your Bibles in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Starting in verse 1. Romans 13.1. Paul says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse 3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority, Paul says? Easy. Do what's good. <laughs> and you'll have praise from the same. It's amazing how you really don't get stressed out when a police officer drives by and you're going the speed limit. It's no problem. When you're speeding and you see those lights start to flash, oh no! Or you're heading, heading down the freeway and you're doing about 80 miles an hour and you, and you see the, the officer up ahead and you slam on your brakes and you start to break into a cold sweat, you think, I'm going to get a ticket. That's when you worry. But hey, when you're keeping the law, there's nothing to worry about, Paul says. He goes on and says, do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. Verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But, listen to this, if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. In verse 4, the two words, brings wrath, is literally executes wrath. Executes wrath. And biblical scholars, up until our culture, for thousands of the last 2,000 years until today, biblical scholars have always understood this to mean the death penalty. If you look at older writings, older commentaries, they're all in agreement that this idea of an avenger who executes wrath on the one who practices evil is referring to capital punishment. By the way, for those of us who struggle with the idea of capital punishment, as I myself have, for those who say, okay, it's an Old Testament thing, and even when you read the New Testament, you can say, well, I'm not sure if that's absolute there in what Paul is writing. Understand this, or answer this question. When did the Noahic Covenant end? When did it end? It hasn't ended, has it? It hasn't ended. There's no end point for the Noahic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, the Law Covenant, between God and Israel finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But the Noahic Covenant, what does God refer to it as? An everlasting covenant between me and you. It is not a covenant with end. It's a covenant made to God by all the descendants of Noah. Well, who are all the descendants of Noah? Look around the room. You're looking at them. For we are all the descendants of Noah. By the way, it's interesting. If you go to Israel today and ask a rabbi how you can enjoy favor with God, how you as, as a non-Jewish, as a Gentile, how can you kind of get in on the Jewish faith? If that's what you wanted to do, what a rabbi would point you to is the Noahic covenant. Even today, they'll point you back there. They'll say, keep this covenant. And this covenant will stand at least until the world is destroyed the second time. Final note on capital punishment. We'll move on. Capital punishment is an awesome responsibility. That's, that's the difficult thing we've got to know. And where I stand on it today is we had better be absolutely sure of somebody's guilt. And a great example of that is in the Elizabeth Smart case, Richard Ricci, or Ricci. The handyman who everybody was just absolutely sure was guilty, who had, uh, what was it, um, an aneurysm, died while in jail. They never found out, was it him? Did he kidnap her? Did he kill her? Did he do something? We never knew that until we found the real kidnappers. And it's funny, the news didn't say anything about Richard Reese after that. But here's a guy who, if the process had continued, might have received the death penalty, and he didn't do it. And that does happen. So though God gives capital punishment as something foundational for human government, we need to be sure. 
Um, one last note on this. There's an interesting prophetic implication of capital punishment for the Jewish people. I just want to mention to you Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Genesis 49, verse 10 says the following. Israel is now at this point, he is blessing his sons. Jacob is, is blessing his 12 sons. And as he's going around, he says the following about Judah in a blessing. He says, the scepter, or rule, the scepter is, is a picture of rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Who's Shiloh? Messiah. Until Messiah comes, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. In other words, the right to self-rule. Judah will have the right. The Jews will have self-rule all the way up until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To Messiah. And Jews had always believed that the key component of the scepter or self-rule was the right to capital punishment. Which they maintained all the way through their history until a certain point. It was at the Feast of the Passover. And on this particular day, during the Feast of the Passover, priests and rabbis throughout Jerusalem began to mourn and wail and weep because word came down from Rome that they no longer had the right to self-rule. Rome removed the Jews' right to capital punishment. You see this in the crucifixion of Jesus because the Jews had to go to the Romans to get permission and to ask the Romans to carry out capital punishment because the Jews couldn't do it anymore. That right was gone. Completely taken from them. So there was wailing in the streets. Why? Because the rabbis realized the scepter had now departed from Judah and Shiloh had not come. But what's interesting is on that exact same day in history, in the temple in Jerusalem, a 12-year-old boy named Jesus from Nazareth was stirring the minds of the old men, the teachers of the law, the rabbis. He was blowing them away with his understanding of the word. In fact, Shiloh had come. He was sitting right there in Jerusalem on this same day, amazing the leaders of the Jews. The scepter did not depart from Judah before Shiloh came. There, by the way, is a very small window of time, according to Jewish writing, according to God's gift to the Jews in the Old Testament. Short window of time that Messiah could even have shown up. I don't know if you realize this, but, but Messiah had to come at, at, before the scepter disappeared. But he also had to come, or after he had to come after the departure of the scepter from Judah, but before the fall of Jerusalem. That was a period of about 35 or 40 years. Very, very small window of time that Messiah could even have come. Once the scepter departed, once Jerusalem fell and was destroyed completely, you wonder why today Jewish people will say God is dead. Or Jewish people at least will say God has forgotten us or there really is not going to be a Messiah. The Jewish people are Messiah. They've kind of allegorized so much because they missed him. The window closed. And the only person in that window at the time was Jesus. So you either buy his Messiah or not. Final thing on the death penalty, as with any issue of life, let me encourage you to let the word of God guide and guard your belief. Not personal opinion, not politics, but what God's word says. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Number three. Number three. God in this covenant gives a compelling declaration. Look at verse 12. 
God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I shall set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The rainbow. And what's really cool today, when we stand around, and as I was saying before, a lot of times we say, well, we just don't see the, the wonder of God's, we don't see God's signs today like they did back then. Have you seen a rainbow? This is God proclaiming every time you see one, God is saying, I remember my covenant. I still have my eye on you. I'm still not destroying you. I'm holding back wrath and extending mercy. That's what the rainbow is. It's a picture, a sign of mercy, a wonderful sign of mercy. If you still see a rainbow in the sky from time to time, you know the Noahic covenant is still in effect. It's still going on today. Rabbis say that usually with a bow comes an arrow, but in the case of the Noahic covenant, the bow is here alone without an arrow because the arrow of judgment had already been shot in the flood, and now the bow stands empty, arrowless, as a sign of grace and mercy. It's a beautiful symbol of grace in Scripture. And we see it again, by the way, a little later on in Scripture, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. John is writing about the vision that Jesus is giving him, and he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. John says immediately, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one was sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Folks, it was God's grace that saved Noah, and subsequently all of us. And it's God's grace that surrounds his throne even today. But John saw the rainbow of God's grace. But this time, not just a bow, but going all the way around the throne in a huge symbol, a huge picture of God's grace. And that's the one thing we need to approach God's throne. It's his grace. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 tells us, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, in this case, and in most others, the rainbow comes after the storm. Storm hits, begins to go away, the clouds are there, and we see the rainbow following the rain. But there's a case coming up where the rainbow comes before the storm. Listen to this. What happens when people reject God's grace? You know, the rainbow is an ironic choice for a symbol. It's an ironic choice for the homosexual community in our world to choose the rainbow as their symbol. Cheryl, several years ago, we were living in Virginia, and she and her grandparents took our kids, who were very young at the time. Hannah was just a little baby, right? And Corey was very young. Hayden wasn't quite with us yet. And she and her grandparents went into Washington, D.C. to see the sights and to travel around, and they were in the, the station there, Union Station. And Cheryl didn't realize until they got to Union Station that that happened to be the last day of a huge homosexual rally in Washington, D.C. So here's my wife, two little kids, and her grandparents walking through Union Station and surrounded with throngs of people with rainbows everywhere. <coughs> the homosexuality, Cheryl came home and she was just like, it was very difficult to be there. It was very strange. My grandparents were holding hands really tight. <laughs> 
A rainbow is everywhere. And isn't it ironic that the very sign God offers for grace, those who have and will rebel against or reject God's plan, they take that sign for themselves. Rick, you're being hard on the homosexual. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 22. Prophetically, Jesus is speaking to a church that exists in our day. And Jesus is saying to that church that exists in our day, listen, you're, you're chasing after Jezebel. Using an Old Testament example of Jezebel, who's an extremely wicked woman. You're chasing after Jezebel, and he says, Behold, I will cast her into a bed. You want to go to bed? You want to be in bed? I am going to cast you into a bed with them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Revelation chapter 2 verse 22. Unless they repent of their deeds, unless they turn from them. And folks, in the case of the rainbow around the throne of John's vision... This rainbow comes before the storm of the tribulation. If you study the book of Revelation at all, you know this. Chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. John is caught up in this vision and he is in heaven. And it's an awesome picture of literally the rapture of the church in heaven. Seeing all these wonderful, glorious things caught up, pulled out. That happens first. And John sees the rainbow of God's grace. But then beginning in chapter 6 of Revelation all the way through chapter 19... In the longest section describing God's wrath and God's judgment in the Bible, we see the storm of the tribulation. The rainbow comes first. Mercy is doled out first, followed then by severe and serious judgment. Unlike any judgment, the flood included, that the world has ever seen. Revelation 3.10 tells us how to avoid the tribulation. Yeah, how do I do that? I want to know. How do I avoid this time of wrath and judgment? Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance... Jesus says, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I'll keep you out of the tribulation. What are you talking about, Lord? How do I keep the word of his perseverance? Very simply this. The word of my perseverance, perseverance is best translated patience. How do I keep the word of Jesus' patience? Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, he tells us to wait for his Son, God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And when Paul says wait, he uses an interesting word. It's the Greek word anamenio. Anamenio means to wait in a state of readiness. Remember Sunday morning we talked about Noah standing at the window. Noah was waiting in a state of readiness. He was looking for the dove. He was waiting for the dove to return. He was expectantly waiting. That's the lifestyle that Jesus is looking for. I don't want to go through the tribulation. Great. Wait for him. He's coming. Look for him. Live life in a state of readiness. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, with Jesus on your mind, be looking toward his coming. And know that the believer is established in the Lord and we are motivated by the Lord when we wait in a state of readiness. For his return. Let's go on. Beginning of verse 18. Now we change direction a little bit. God has made the covenant with Noah. And give me just a few more minutes. And focus on this. This is, this is some amazing stuff. Beginning of verse 18. It tells us. Now the sons of Noah. Who came out of the ark. Were Shem. And Ham. And Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. 
And these three were the sons of Noah. And listen to this. From these, the whole earth was populated. I'll show you how next week when we get to chapter 10. From Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the whole earth was populated. Going on in verse 20. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. Harmless enough. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. We certainly can learn a lesson from good old Noah here. Noah, the righteous man. Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, who was the one guy on planet Earth who was righteous, who was good. And God said, go into the ark. I'm going to save you and your family. Because, Noah, I have seen that you are righteous. You're the only one. And isn't that just the way it is? See if this resonates with you. That when things are hard, when there are trials, when life is tough, those tend to be the times when I hang pretty closely onto the arm of the Lord. When I'm struggling, that's when I'm crying out to God. When people are persecuting me or pushing against me, those are the times where I'm, man, I'm ready to go. I've got the sword of the word out, I'm ready to fight, I'm hanging on to God strong. But when times are easy, laid back, no problem, when everything's relaxed in my life, when all is right with the world, those tend to be the times when temptation is at its worst. Those tend to be the times when we fall. And so it is with Noah. He's just doing great when the world was against him. But now all it is is Noah and the family and the whole wide world before him. What could he possibly do wrong? So he plants a vineyard. No problem. He begins to drink some wine. No problem. But he keeps drinking. And drinking and drinking and falls down, drunk and naked in his tent. Noah gets blasted and falls down without his clothes and he's in his tent. Folks, God wants us in the good times and the bad. He wants to be our God when things are easy and when things are tough. Either way, God wants to be God. Let me throw in, by the way, a quick word on drunkenness because I think the Bible is very clear about drinking. It's very clear. How do you deal with drinking according to what the Bible says? Well, the Bible does not say drinking is wrong. You can disagree with me, but you can't find it. It doesn't declare drinking in and of itself is wrong. But it does declare very firmly, very vividly, that drunkenness is wrong. That drunkenness is in and of itself a sin. Why why is drunkenness a sin? Think about it. Think about what it does to a person. What did it do to Noah? It left him exposed. And when you drink and drink and drink... Your tongue loosens and you end up saying things, doing things, acting in ways that you would not act otherwise. Noah would not have fallen down naked in his tent if not for the wine that was in him. You say things you wouldn't normally say, do things you wouldn't normally do, you leave yourself open for trouble and you lose sight of the times in which you live. What do you mean by that? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 6. Paul says, let's not sleep as others do. Let's be alert. Let's be sober. Getting back to that waiting expectantly for the coming of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 7 he says, Those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let's be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. Good news. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's cool is soberness. According to scripture, you read through that, and God says, man, 
It is great to be sober. It is cool to be alert. It's fantastic to live a life where you're aware. You know what's going on. You're poised and ready at any moment, either for battle or for the coming of the Lord. The drunkenness. You're a little off kilter. Your reflexes aren't quite as fast. And you're certainly not keeping an eye on the times. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but here's something. Want to get high? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You want the feeling that's beyond any? You want to live a life that's wondrous? You be filled with the Spirit. So, drunken Noah gets caught with his pants down. Verse 22. Look at what happens here. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Verse 23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. Interesting commentary on Ham and on Shem and Japheth. Ham did something terribly wrong here, folks. And it's worse than what we see. You look at this and see Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Big deal. He walks outside and goes, you got to see Dad. you got to see this. He's butt naked. And he's lying there and he's just in a drunk. This is a good laugh. This is great. It's more than that. It's more than that. It's more than the fact that Ham dishonored his father by laughing about it. This word saw, when it says that Ham saw his father naked, literally is to gaze at. Or, more specifically, to look upon with enjoyment. There's something kind of sick going on with Ham. Something worse than maybe we thought at first. But Shem and Japheth, man, though Ham acts dishonorably, Shem and Japheth act honorably. They seek to cover their father, not to condemn him. And watch this. Noah wakes up and he knows that Ham has dishonored him. We're going to talk more about Shem, Ham, and Japheth on Sunday morning. So we'll come back to that. But Noah wakes up and verse 24 tells us when he awoke from his wine. <laughs> I love that line. And he's, oh, okay. That was not good. Where are my clothes? Okay. Tells us Noah woke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. What does that mean? I don't want to get into it. I'll leave that to your vivid imagination. He knew what his youngest son had done to him. And so he said, listen to this, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. What? Cursed be Canaan? The story's not about Canaan. The story's about Ham. Why is he cursing Canaan? What's going on here, Noah? Are you still in your drunken stupor? Are you still not quite thinking straight? He says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brother. Brothers, who is Canaan? And why does he bear the axe of Noah's curse? Well, Canaan wasn't even Ham's firstborn. He was Ham's fourthborn son. The fourth son of Ham. So why is Noah cursing his fourth grandson for something that his son did? That doesn't seem to make sense. Well, there's a practical reason and there's a prophetical reason. Quickly, the practical reason is this. In the Bible, there's a principle we don't often consider in our world and in our choices and our behavior today. Here is the principle, Exodus 34, verse 6. 
tells us the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. We live in a world where we say, hey, look, live and let live. You live your life and I'll live mine. And if you want to go out and do weird stuff, that's fine. You know, I just, just don't bring it on me. We have churches today, most recently and notably in the news, the Episcopal Church, saying, hey, Live and let live. Your lifestyle, it's your lifestyle. This is mine, that's cool, whatever. No impact, right? And we all say, hey, if I do something wrong, I'll, I'll be responsible for it. If I want to go out and get drunk on Friday night, hey, it's my body, I'll be responsible for it. If I want to do this over here, it's not going to harm or hurt anybody else. And God says, wrong. Wrong. Your choices do affect others, especially those in your own family. Folks, my choices to sin always bring an impact beyond me. And God says here very clearly in Exodus 34, the iniquity of the fathers will be visited on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And we see it with Ham and Canaan. And Noah's saying, Ham, you've done a, a disgusting, dishonorable thing. Cursed is Canaan. Canaan, my fourth son? Yeah. Because you know what, Ham? He was raised by you. And your sin is not a sin in a bottle. It's not a sin in a vacuum. There's no such thing as sin in a vacuum. When I choose to rebel against God and sin, it impacts the lives of people around me. The older I get and the more aware I am of my own life and I think about my children, I think, you know what? When I do wrong, they know. They watch. And if I head down certain pathways, they follow. My choices will impact them. That's the practical reason why we see this happening, but there's a prophetic reason as well. A prophetic reason. Because this curse and these blessings are not just Noah in anger, they are, amazingly, Noah in prophecy. He says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. But he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. He gives a curse and two blessings. Why? Prophecy, folks, is not that which might happen. Prophecy is that which has happened in the eyes of God. Everything that God prophesies in Scripture, He's already seen take place. These are not things that, as we read, might happen. Hopefully, God said, and we're going to see if He can work them out and make them happen. No, they have happened. From a God's eye view, everything that's prophesied in Scripture, it's happened. It's a done deal. So as we read prophecy, we're reading history ahead of time. And Ham, Ham is standing there, and Noah says, Cursed be Canaan. Why Canaan? <laughs> Well, listen to this. A couple of last things. And stick close with me on this at the end. All people on planet Earth come from these three boys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. All of us find our lineage and can draw it back at some level to Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham, whose name means either dark or hot, he is the father of the Hamitic people. That is those who settled in the regions of Africa. Dark? Africa? Are you talking about... African people? Negroes? Black people? Yeah. 
Yeah, Ham is the father of those people. Now, some old commentaries try to suggest that the curse leveled on African peoples, or this curse, has been leveled on black people. In other words, people who are black were cursed to be that way and cursed to be in slavery and, and cursed because of the curse of Ham. Well, there's a theological word for that perspective. You don't want to write this down if you're taking notes. The word is malarkey. Okay, or another good word is baloney. It's ridiculous. First of all, the curse wasn't given to Ham. It was given to Canaan. So Ham, as the father of the Hamitic people, was not the one cursed when Noah gave this curse. Canaan was. Ham, on the other hand, being the father of those people, and we're going to get into, by the way, race next week. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how different skin colors and how everybody got to where they are and how does this all work. We're going to look at that next week. But what's interesting is until recently, this perspective toward black people was held very strongly in the Mormon church. Believed that black people were lesser than because they were under the curse of Canaan, even though it wasn't the curse of Ham, and the Hamitic people come from Ham. First of all, that wasn't the, the, the case. The curse was not on Ham. In fact, there was a time in Earth's history when civilization was under the control of the Hamitic peoples. I love what J. Vernon McGee says about this. He says, quote, In history, every so-called race has had opportunity to show their stuff on the world stage, and every race has blown it. For a long time, Europe was pretty out there. The white people living in Europe, they were barbaric. And the civilization was among darker skinned people in Africa or even in the Middle East. It was not always the way it is today. And we need to remember that. It, it, it would do all of us a, a bit of good to, to see what true history is, world history is, to understand that though right now Western, the Western world has the rule, it wasn't always that way. We do now. But others did before. The Hamitic peoples were one of those. So the curse wasn't on Ham. It was on Canaan, the father of the Canaanites. And that curse, by the way, stuck and does to this day. Zechariah 14, verse 21. God says at the end times when he restores Jerusalem and everything is, is wonderful, Jesus returns. He says, listen to this, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judea will be holy to the Lord of hosts. Every cooking pot. That means if you're baking up some macaroni and cheese, it's so good in the world at that time, the pot is holy. I love the descriptions in Scripture. He goes on to say that all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Wow. Why not? Canaan was cursed by Noah prophetically because Canaan, historically, was sick and perverted, and ultimately God called on Israel to wipe Canaan out. Canaan's land. To Canaan's land, I'm on my way. Israel, go to Canaan and wipe out the people. Why? Because they are intensely evil. Because they have rebelled far beyond imagination. They have become completely uncontrolled, completely paganistic. Therefore, God told the Israelite people to wipe them out. You go back to the prophecy of Noah, cursed be Canaan. Of course. Of course. Because God knew that's exactly what was going to happen. When we get to the name of Shem, Shem's name, Ham's name, remember, means hot or it means black. Shem's name means glory. Now listen closely to this. fascinating to me. Shem is the father of the Shemitic people or the 
Semitic people. The Shemitic, Semitic, same word, same origin. The Semitic people, you've heard of anti-Semitism. Who are we talking about? The Jews. Shem is the father of the Jews. Interestingly, Shem is also the father of the Arabs. The Arabs and the Jews both come out of Shem. They both come from the same place. And they primarily settled there in the Middle East. Ham, the Hamitic people settling in Africa. The Shemitic people settling in the Middle East. And then, third name, Japheth. Japheth's name, interesting, means ruler. So you have Ham, the black one. You have Shem, whose name is Glory. And by the way, that Glory was not for Shem, but it was Glory toward God, who is honored and exalted because of his and through his relationship with the Semitic people, the Jews. Back to that next week. But Japheth's name means ruler. What happened to Japheth and his people? They headed west. And they settled primarily in Europe. Now keep in mind that the Europeans, again, were very primitive for centuries. But the sons of Japheth would one day be the rulers of the world. One day, two day. The sons of Japheth, the western world, do rule the world. We live in this, Did you watch the State of the Union address last night? As President Bush was talking and speaking and saying we will not allow terrorism in the world, he was going off. Do you know why he could do that? Because right now, as it stands at this place in history, America is the superpower. America is the ruler, the Japheth, of the world. Now the sons of Japheth, after ruling in Europe, came across the Atlantic Ocean, founded America, and again now rule the world as their single superpower in what I would call the waning days of planet Earth. Now, watch the prophecy and listen closely. Ham goes south. Canaan is cursed. Shem stays in the Mideast with a promise of bringing glory to God. And Japheth goes west and rules. But look at this. Verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. What is this saying? Japheth dwells in the tents of Shem. Japheth somehow is covered through the God of Shem via the people of Shem. Japheth finds its connection to God, its covering, its redemption, if you will. How? Through Shem. Through the Jews. Because one came through the Jews, through the Shemitic people, who provided for us redemption, our covering. Romans chapter 11, verse 17. I wish I could give you more of this, but just real quickly. But if some of the branches, speaking of the Jews, Paul says, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the original branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You and I today, why should we care about what goes on in Israel? Why should we even have a care about the Jew in the world? We're the Christians, man. We got Jesus. We got salvation. We got grace. Why care about Israel? Because it's the root of Israel that supports us. It is through the root of Israel that we have our salvation. It is through Israel that God came as Jesus. The word becoming flesh and dwelt. The word there is literally tabernacle. Jesus literally pitched his tent among us. 
And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Last verse and we're done. Flip to Isaiah 43. It's just given this verse today. And it's perfect. Isaiah 43. God is talking to Israel in Isaiah 43. He's talking to them about their redemption. And he's he's saying some wonderful things. He begins in in verse 1 and he says, But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by my name. You are mine. He's talking to Shem, glory, the people of glory, the people of His name. Verse 2 he says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers... They will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight. You are honored, and I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Verse 5, watch close. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up! And to the south, Do not hold them back! Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Verse 7, Don't miss this. Everyone, everyone, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. What is God saying? He's saying, listen, people of Shem, I'm going to bring you back from the north and the south, the east and the west, all across the world, wherever you've been scattered. I am going to regather you back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, back to be my people again. But along with you, along with you, people of Shem, everyone who is called by my name, Any and everyone who is called by the name of the Lord will be pulled in. And what was the prophecy? What was it that Noah said? Let Japheth, let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let the Gentiles join the Jews in a relationship, a new covenant relationship with the Father. Jesus came through the Shemitic people. He pitched his tent among us. And in the same way that a tent covers, Jesus covers us from our sins and He invites us into the tent of the Father where we will live eternally. Let's pray. God, we are a people who need a covering and we know that. We're gathered here tonight Because we believe in Jesus. Because, Lord, we accept your word. Because we want to know your word. And because we know that there was a time when we were out in the cold. When we were like Noah, uncovered. When we in our drunkenness were without favor. And yet now we reside in the tents of Shem. Grafted in where, Lord, we don't even belong. But grafted in and saved by a marvelous plan. Father, we praise you and glorify you for your word and for your plan and for what you have done. We honor you as as God 
for the greatness and the vastness of your mind. Who, who can even fathom your thoughts, Father? Your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And yet, Lord, when we catch these tiny little glimpses of how you have pieced this whole thing together, how you have worked your marvelous will among us, we are amazed by you. And we honor you, we, we just praise you for what you have done. And we thank you, Father, for gathering us in and covering us along with the people of Shem. And we pray, Lord, now that we may live lives as the days wane. We may live lives in this world that will not only bless those who are outside of the covering, but, Lord, that will also bless the people of Shem. I pray specifically, Lord, for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray, God, for Jewish people everywhere who have yet to understand Messiah and accept Him. I pray that through our behavior, that Jewish people would not see us as, as big, dumb, bigoted Christians, but instead would see us as extending the hand of love. And I pray, Father, that you would just bring this all to be. I pray for the fulfillment of all your prophecy. I long for it, look forward to it. And we as your people tonight, people called by your name, can do nothing but stand back in awe of you and your work. Father, continue to do among us what you have started. And may we be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.